We are so happy that you have joined us in our study of five attitudes that we want to avoid if we're going to cooperate with God. We talked about unwillingness, um, and all of these, uh, we began in Psalm 78, but then we went to different passages of Scripture to illustrate those things. Unwillingness was the first uh, blockage. Then we talked about unconcern. Then we used a long word, unreasonableness, uh, in our third session. And in the fourth session, we talked about uncleanness. Now, uncleanness and tonight's word, the word unbelief, are probably the most logical to our holiness mindset. You know, we are very familiar with the Lord speaking through Isaiah and said, my ear is not heavy that I can't hear. My arm has not been paralyzed that I cannot extend and help you. He says, but your iniquities, your uncleanness has separated you from your God. All of us that grew up in a holiness church, we understand the teaching of holiness, and we understand how that can hinder what God wants to do. I think the word in this final lesson, unbelief, is probably the most logical word when you think of hindering God, unbelief. But I also think unbelief is the most misunderstood word. Let me tell you what we, we Pentecostals and Charismatics have a tendency to do. We have a tendency to adopt a theology that is seriously flawed in two areas. Number one, we, we tend to gravitate to a theology that has no theology of suffering. We don't know what to do with suffering. When we are called upon to suffer, then we find ourselves stuck. We find ourselves in a situation where we are desperately on a search to find someone or something to blame for our suffering. And I tell you what, the, the theology of suffering is a very, very controversial point of Scripture. In Scripture, the New Testament, it's called the fellowship of His suffering. And it's easy to make the mistake of thinking that suffering for suffering's sake has some virtue in it. Uh, but we are not more holy because we're suffering. We understand when we get to the bottom of it that the theology of suffering, or more specifically the fellowship of His suffering, has to do with us pressing through when we're suffering. The focus is not on the suffering. The focus is on us persevering. Just as Jesus despised the cross, he pressed through, and that's what made him worthy. He did not want to go on the cross, and that's why he said, uh, Father, if there is any other way, let's do that. But if not, nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. People that walk in the fellowship of suffering misunderstand it's not about suffering, it's about persevering through the suffering. Now, and then the source of the suffering, that's another study altogether. The same kind of baggage we bring to the table with unbelief, the second thing we do wrong, we, we dismiss suffering 
the mystery of it, the fellowship of it, the reason for it, the existence of it. We dismiss it. Uh, I, you know, I heard somebody say when they were confronted with scriptures that had to do with suffering, they said, and a point was made about Job in particular, and Job, you got to understand, Job was not some weak-kneed, feeble believer. He was listed as one of three of the mightiest men of God in the Old Testament. I mean, he was up there with Daniel. He was up there, you know, with, with, the, with the holiest of the holies. And this person just simply dismissed it this way. He said, I follow Jesus, not Job. And I understand, and that's a good sound bite, but it says basically, I'm going to take the scriptures that I understand and things that I don't understand or I don't, don't fit my grid, I, I'll just dismiss them. And we can't do that because all scripture is given by God and is profitable for doctrine, for encouragement, for instruction in righteousness. Each scripture may have a different purpose, but it all has a purpose. And it all has a place. And as we've often said, and I hope you remember as you take on this last lesson in your study about attitudes to avoid, we build doctrine not from a verse or not from a couple of verses, but we build doctrine from all of the verses. Uh, you can't just cherry pick what you want. And what we end up with in Pentecostal and charismatic circles, and I, I'm not criticizing them, I am one, or as many preachers have said, I are one, you know. I, I, I am thoroughly Pentecostal. I believe that God is healer. I believe in the miraculous gifts of the, of the Holy Spirit. I believe all of those things. Um, you know, Paul said, I, I thank God I speak in tongues more than y'all. And I'm, I'm here to say I believe in miracles along with all of you. But what we have unintentionally produced is a theology that exhausts us to pursue faith qualitatively and quantitatively instead of pursuing the Lord. And the average Christian in a Pentecostal church, if they're not careful, unless they have good teaching, they will exhaust themselves pursuing faith instead of pursuing the Lord. And that's not what we see in the New Testament. So what does he mean when he says unbelief can bind the hands of God? Unbelief can hinder what God wants to do. Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 13. Now, now let, me, let me interrupt myself to go back to Psalm 78. Listen to Psalm 78, verses 56 to 58, New Living Translation. It says, they kept testing and rebelling against God most high. They did not obey his laws. They turned back and were as faithless as their parents, meaning in the wilderness. They were as undependable as a crooked bow. Those of you that are old timers right, might remember seeing W.C. Fields try to shoot pool with that crooked bow. And, he, you know, he would line it up perfectly and miss every time. Uh, he says, you, God says, you are as undependable as a crooked bow, not a cue stick, but a crooked bow. He said, um, you have angered God by building shrines to other gods and made him jealous with your idols. Psalm 78 is our root scripture, 
And it's where we learn about unwillingness and unconcern and unreasonableness and uncleanness and unbelief. But let's look at Matthew 13. It says, now Jesus is at his hometown. Um, he, he, he had his biggest opposition, it seems like, other than Jerusalem. He had it in his very hometown. You know, if you've been to Nazareth, and some of you have, we, we went there a few years ago, and um, there's one synagogue in Nazareth, and history says it's the only synagogue that's ever been there. And it was an awesome thing to step into that synagogue and to know that you were in the very synagogue itself where Jesus did his teaching. But it was also very sobering to realize you were in the synagogue where he was utterly rejected. It says they took offense at him. Jesus did this miraculous proclamation. He's anointed by the Spirit. But they took offense at him. And he said, prophets are not without honor except in their own country and in their own house. And he did not do many deeds of power there. Why? Because of their unbelief. Now, I don't think this means that Jesus tried and failed because Jesus only did the assignments that Father gave him, but the whole system was aborted. It was short-circuited because there was such an attitude of unbelief, and it wasn't that they didn't have their faith just right. We're going to learn tonight that unbelief can be weakness, and God can work with that. Or unbelief can be wickedness. But we don't ever get things based on the quality of our faith. Now Jesus would say, great is your faith. Where is your faith? Why do you have no faith? It's not that faith is not measurable. But what we do not find in Scripture is an indicator that says, if you can reach the 72% faith mark, you're home free. You know, uh, or if you reach 90% faith, you're home free. No, the, the only division among the categories of faith was, uh, or, or unbelief, I should say, uh, the opposite of faith, is whether it was just due to the weakness of the flesh or whether it was an intentional stance of the heart. That's Matthew 13, 57. Mark 6 puts it this way, um, the same event, but from a different writer. And he could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. Boy, that talks about the power of Jesus, doesn't it? He couldn't do a lot. All he could do is heal a few people. I mean, boy, we would send off an article to, to the evangel if, if Jesus was here and healed 15 or 20 people and, and say, well, that's all, that's all he was able to do is just heal 15 or 20 people. Man, we would be shouting and dancing and we'd, we'd, we'd be wonderful. He laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And, and this is the way this passage ends. And he was amazed at their unbelief. We have a tendency, and rightly so, we have a tendency to be amazed when God does something fabulous. And it is truly wonderful what the Lord does. It is worthy of us being amazed. I'm not putting that down. But the thing that amazed Jesus was how people could walk in such unbelief. 
in the light, in light of the light, I guess I could say, that had been given to them. He was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went about among the villages teaching. Now, Jesus tells us a little bit more about unbelief. First of all, it can bind the hands of God. Um, Unbelief is absolutely mind-blowing to Jesus because he lived in communion with the Father. And, um, you know, when you go home tonight and flip on the light switch and the light comes on, you're not going to say, whoo, what? Thank you, Thomas Edison. You're not going to tell your children the story of the invention of the light bulb and all of that. You just, I paid the bill, expect the light to come on. But what happens when you flip the switch and it doesn't come on, you begin to wonder, what is going on here? Is the light blown? Is power out? Is is there a wiring problem? You're amazed at it not working because it works all the time. And we don't ever want to cheapen the miraculous, but that was the approach Jesus took. He said, you have seen so much. How can you possibly walk in unbelief? Now, in Luke 22, 68, uh, Jesus is asked this question, you know, are you the Messiah? And he's asked all kinds of questions. And it, it's, it's a little hard to know sometimes when you read King James Version because thou hast said and things like that. He, it's, it's a little different than our modern English. But Jesus wasn't speaking in mysteries. He said, yes, you, you yourself are saying the truth. I am Messiah. I am the Son of God. But he said, but if I question you, you will not answer. Um, that's what uh, some translations read. You will not answer. But most translations go with something like this. If I question you, you know, you're asking me questions, but if I bring the facts to the table, he said, you still won't believe. Neither will you release me. It, it's, a, it's an awkward thing translating that from, from Greek into English. Uh, especially modern English. But Jesus was saying, you're asking the questions, but if I were to ask you questions, you would not give me an answer that showed you believed, nor would anything I say cause you to release me. Don't be amazed that I'm not trying to defend myself because your heart is set on unbelief. And loved ones, that's what I want us to understand I don't think God is hindered nearly as much. Now, it it can happen. I know that. But I don't think God is hindered nearly as much as us struggling with our flesh as he is with a preset disposition that says, I will not believe. Now, we're going to go straight to Christian life lessons. And there are two of them. Here's the first. Unbelief is not usually the inability to believe. Unbelief in Scripture is usually the refusal to believe. Now, again, I know there are issues of the quality of our faith and not being double-minded. I know that, and I, I don't dispute that. But my contention is that the majority of the time in Scripture... When unbelief is addressed, it has to do with unbelief about the claims of Jesus and his Messiahship and not the quality of our confession. 
He, he said that it's not about the inability to believe because we all have an ability to believe, though it is a gift from God. It's usually a refusal to believe. Um, Paul understood that some um, unbelief was due to the weakness of the flesh. He said this, he said, I was a blasphemer, but God forgave me. Why? Because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. He said, we're all born with this tendency and faith. We're, we, are, we are not born with faith. Now, we do believe, by the way, that our children are born in a state of innocence. Um, and, and we don't criticize people that baptize infants. Um, we, we believe that baptism um, uh, is an expression of faith. That is, is, it's the person's testimony. I've accepted Jesus, but I don't get upset with people that baptize infants because Israel circumcised baby boys when they were eight days old. It was, they were saying, this child is in a state of innocence. This child has no qualitative or quantitative faith right now. We know that, but we are marking this child as part of the community. And it's the same thing we do when we dedicate children. Other churches baptize children. We're marking them as part of the community. Um, but the fact remains, even though our children are born in innocence, we are still also, also born spiritually blind. We are born as servants of Satan. Uh, and we have to understand that unbelief can be uh, a wickedness that has to be dealt with and repented of. Um, the passage we read in Psalm 78, um, all we like sheep, and Isaiah would say, all we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Loved ones, I, I want to tell you, if we are dealing with an unbelief, Jesus said to the Pharisees, but you will not believe. You've made the decision to not believe. The people of Nazareth said, where is he getting this stuff? What parlor tricks has he learned? Isn't he uh, the son of Mary and the son of the carpenter? Aren't his four brothers here with us? What about his sisters? We know this family. And they had an op uh, opportunity to see Jesus grow up in that town. But they chose a path of offense. They chose a path of rejection and said, this cannot be the real deal. They made a decision, I will not believe. And loved ones, if we are in a situation where we're trying to deal with God and we choose to not believe, mercy doesn't live there. Grace does not live there. Now, God will extend it to us. But to the Pharisees, he said, but you will not believe. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, but you will not believe. And it's so sad. He said, you will not believe and so that you can come to me and have life. I tell you, we need to understand that the, that the terminal unbelief is not weak faith. Terminal unbelief is not a bad confession. We need to have a good confession. But terminal unbelief is I am unwilling to believe 
I hear people say sometimes, and, and you know, I try to share the gospel with them, and they say, I just can't believe that. Well, you, you the, and I correct them. I say, let's, let's be more accurate. It's not that you can't believe, it's that you don't believe. Well, I don't want to say I don't believe. I just can't believe. I said, it's the same thing. You don't believe. And Jesus said that something has to happen for you to pass from death to life. And it's this thing called a faith reaction to grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. Um, faith is, is, the, is the active agent that sets things in motion. And the wonderful thing, you say, well, I've still got to get to the point where I can believe. No, it's a gift of God. It is the gift of God. You and I cannot believe unless God touches our heart. We can't even know we're lost unless God touches our heart. And the unbelief of wickedness is terminal. You can't fix it. You can't work your way out of it. It takes the intervening hand of God to extend faith to your, to your heart so that you respond to him. Now that's unbelief that's based in wickedness. The, the, the other dynamic of this is that some unbelief is, faith, is, is based not in wickedness, but in weakness. In other words, you can have a relationship with Jesus and still struggle to believe all the promises of God. It may be due to just being a young Christian and not learning everything yet. It may be that you're just going through a trial and all the circumstances in your life are saying, nope, that hasn't happened. It's not for me. It hasn't happened to me. Uh, it, it could be that you're under demonic assault. It could be that you just haven't lived the Christian life long enough to see how good God is. It's weakness. It doesn't mean that you're going to hell. It doesn't mean that you are separated from the Lord and need to get saved all over again. Remember we talked in the last lesson about the need for foot washing. We don't need another bath but we need foot washing. So let's look at a case of weak faith. You say, well, what do I do if my faith is weak? Well, you call out to him. And a good example of it is in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 27. Uh, Jesus and three of his disciples had been on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's, it's there uh, if I'm remembering correctly, fairly close to Nazareth. Not, not at Nazareth, but fairly close. And there was this amazing encounter with God and this change that comes over Jesus. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about, Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. And Jesus said to them, You faithless people. 
Now, Jesus was not saying that there was no faith in the camp. His disciples were there. He was saying, and you just got to understand from the sentence structure, what he was saying is you've chosen the wrong path. You've chosen the path of not believing. And you need to get back on the right road of belief. He, he says, how long must I be with you? In other words, how, how long is it going to take for me to have to spoon feed you everything? How long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. Just imagine how this man, just think of how it would be if that was your child. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit all often throws him into the fire or into the water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. Now, Jesus is never harsh with people that are sincere. Now, he could be, he could be pretty rude to the Pharisees. But Jesus said, what do you mean if I can? See, Jesus' conversation with this man is drawing out the context of the trouble and drawing out the, the context of faith. He says, what do you mean if I can? <coughs> Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Now, at this point, a lot of modern theologians and a lot of modern preachers would send somebody away on a three-day fast to get their faith up or give them, go buy my book out at the table and read how to have the right kind of faith, faith that pleases God. I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't send us away even when we've got some things wrong. He said, I believe but help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said. I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as the people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, helped him to his feet, and he stood up. Loved ones, let me tell you, if you are in a place where your faith is weak, do what this man did. Don't, don't say, I failed. Don't say, Jesus failed. Well, you say, well, he said the disciples failed. Well, there's a good reason for that. They failed. But we're always going to be surrounded by disciples that fail. We're always going to be surrounded by friends, by pastors, by elders, by church members, by politicians or whoever. We're always going to be surrounded by people that fail us. And the disciples were, were at a loss. Lord, why couldn't we cast this thing out? And Jesus laid down an explanation that is a basis for another study he said, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. And if we're understanding that right, Jesus said, there are some challenges bigger than others. And sometimes it takes more devotion, 
for an anointing, a greater anointing. We don't understand all of that. Uh, it's understandable, but we don't understand all of it intuitively. But Jesus understood this man's conflict. He said, I do believe, but I'm not free of doubt. Please help me. Please help me. And the most encouraging thing of this passage right here is that Jesus did help him. Jesus did do what the man asked for. I love David Wilkerson's sermon when he was talking about this. He said, what father in this auditorium tonight, if you saw your son in the woods and his leg caught in a bear trap, what heartless father you would be to stand there and wait till he got his grammar right, to wait till he got his plea right. Daddy, get me out of this bear trap. Well, it's, son, it's not technically a bear trap. It's a trap for Bigfoot, you know, or whatever. He says, you don't care if his diction is right or if his, if his demeanor is right. All you care about is getting that son out of the trap. And I want you to know the good news is that unbelief, as in I refuse to believe, I won't believe, unbelief can be so damaging. It can even be condemning. But usually what we call unbelief is not unbelief as much as it is doubt. And doubt is, as one preacher used to say, doubt is faith acting up. You don't doubt something you don't believe. You know, do you believe in, uh, i got to check my crowd here. Do you believe in the tooth fairy? No, absolutely not. I don't doubt the tooth fairy. I just don't believe. But boy, when you are a little guy and you've just worked hard to get that thing pulled, you don't want to. You don't want to ruffle any feathers. You know. Uh, I remember. Well, never mind. I don't know who's listening, so I don't want to destroy any young theologians' thoughts right now. I'll let mom and daddy deal with it. Go home tonight and deal with what I just said. And uh, hopefully I didn't do too much damage. But doubt, doubt is not good. Doubt is not commendable. But I want you to know doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Doubt is something that we work through. Doubt is something that we ought not to have. Um, a, a person that's struggling with doubt is called a, 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 a two-souled person, a double-minded. They're two-souled. They believe, but they're also trying to figure out the hows and whys, and, and sometimes there's a conflict. Don't turn away from God if you're struggling with doubt. But if you have set your heart to say, I will not believe, show yourself to him Throw yourself on his mercy. Even Thomas, a man like Thomas, Thomas was such an incredible disciple. He said, I am willing to go with Jesus no matter what it costs. When Jesus said, I'm going here, and the disciples said, don't go that way, go this way. They're going to kill you this way. It was Thomas who said, boys, if he's going this way, I'm going to go and die with him. Phenomenal man. But after resurrection Sunday... Thomas said, I will not believe, not unless I can put my 
fingers in the hole and my hand in his side, I will not believe. And you know what? Jesus said, whatever it takes, I'll work with you. And we've got to begin to understand that God is more eager for us to believe than we are to believe. Father, help us please. As we have worked our way through these five dangerous attitudes, help us to always lean into faith and not into doubt. Help us to have such faith that like you, we are amazed at unbelief. Let it be so in Jesus' name, amen. 